invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5 for our New Testament reading. If you don't have a Bible, this is also in your pew Bible in the chair in front of you. So again, this is Mark chapter 5. We've been reading through the book of Mark together as a church. And here we see Jesus confronting evil, confronting demonic forces. We see how even the the demonic forces recognize Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. And then Jesus shows his power over all of the forces of darkness. So again, this is Mark chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea And drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him. But said to him, Go home to your family, to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. 
And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of God. Let's turn to him in prayer. Father, we marvel at how much you have done for us. This demon-possessed man in the text was giving thanks, was amazed at your grace and your mercy and your power for him. And Lord, as we consider the Thanksgiving holiday coming up, that we have so much to be thankful for, that we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the, the word of God in a language that we can understand. We thank you for the fellowship of believers in the church. Oh, we thank you for your work through Cross Point Church and Hope Church coming together. We thank you for the, the people that you have gathered um, into this church. This, each and every person who is here, I am so thankful for. And Lord, we, we thank you for, for Jonathan um, and that he passed his transfer exam to New Jersey Presbytery to, to go and do uh, RUF campus ministry at Roan University. And, and Lord, even though we do grieve to have him move on from us, we are so excited and thankful for his impact here among us. We're thankful for the ways that you have worked in him um, over the years, equipping him for ministry. And Lord, we are so excited to see what you will do in students through him and through your, your word that he proclaims. We're excited to see the, the impact of those students in, in the world. We pray that some of the students that he disciples on campus could end up becoming great evangelists and great members of churches and, and faithful members of, of your body and that they would um, proclaim your, your, your mighty deeds, your mighty power, that, that you would raise up um, future leaders who uh, can even work in civil society um, with a strong Christian conviction. And Father, we, we thank you for our, our families. We, we thank you for the opportunity to enjoy that time together on Thursday. But Father, we also pray for those who will be traveling. We pray for those who will be um, with, with friends and, and with family members that may be, may be hard. We know that sometimes the Thanksgiving table can be controversial, that that there can be hard conversations or, or people that may be hard to, to love. And so I pray that as, as believers who love Jesus, that, that our true thankfulness will shine together when we are with our friends and our family, that our, our love for, for neighbor would shine through. And so we pray that all of our, our words can be seasoned with salt, that we can be wise, that we can speak to, to build up and to, to edify uh, and so, Father, we, we pray that, that through our model of thankfulness that, that you would be exalted, that your name would be lifted up as holy. And so, Father, we thank you for all of this, and we, we pray in Jesus' name and as he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So now please turn in your Bible with me to the Old Testament, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Remember that we started the famous David and Goliath story last week. And I said that even though this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, that it is an incredibly long chapter, that it's full of a lot of details that we can often pass over quickly. And even though it's important to get the central message of this chapter, to have to know what the, the ultimate significance of chapter 17 is, we don't want to, to lose the details. And so you remember how we talked about Goliath, uh, this, this great warrior, and how the, the Israel's army was on one side of the hill, the Philistine army was on the other side, that you'd have to go down the hill into the valley and up the other side. So there was a military stalemate, and that Goliath came out. He was over nine feet tall. He had the best armor of the time, and he challenged the the armies of the living God, saying, bring your best warrior to fight me. But no one could face Goliath. Everyone was, was terrified. No one knew what to do. Even King Saul was paralyzed in his leadership. And then we're introduced to David a second time, that he comes down to bring supplies to his brothers at the front. And then he hears Goliath again come down, defying the armies of God, that he's filled with this righteous, holy indignation. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? And it's, it's this idea that there is a living God, that, that God makes a difference for our lives, for our understanding of the world. And then, as we pick up with our text today in verse 31, word gets back to uh, King Saul of the, the brave words of this young man, David. And it's often the case that when, we're, when we stand for the Lord, that, that it can be it can be something that stands out to those around us. And so Saul hears the report. So again, we'll begin in verse 31. But when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And 
if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor and put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. But David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank deep, sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, And with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out 
of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'ariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your son lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So we said that this is a a famous passage about David and Goliath. But we need to ask the question at the very start, why does it matter for you and me here today? Why does it matter that an ancient man named David fought this incredibly tall man named Goliath? And the answer is that David was engaged in a battle But we face battles as well. It could be the battle of discouragement or anger or doubt or marital strife or unemployment or singleness or spiritual darkness. What battle are you facing this morning? And then how do you face that battle in the Lord? And that David's battle with Goliath here teaches us how to face the battles of life. So what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this passage, thinking about facing the battles of life, but we're going to look at it from three different perspectives, just turning it in different ways to see different aspects of this story. And so the first thing we're going to do is look at the historical perspective. You can think of it as a lens that we're, we're putting on the historical lens to think about the story. And that's important because this isn't a myth. This is a real historical account about something that happened in space and in time. But also, it is an exciting story. This summer, I had the opportunity to, to sit around a campfire with my children and their second cousins, and the kids were asking me to tell stories and I, I was running out of stories, and so I started going through biblical stories. And so I, would, I was telling especially stories like 
this, the story of David and Goliath, but I, I did the, the uncensored version where he cuts off the head of the, the Philistine and all the children were saying, wow. You know, and then especially the, the little boys were really interested in all of the grisly details of the story. But I think often that especially young boys struggle with church because the way that we tell these stories, we, we suck all of the the grit out of the stories. Uh, and yes, maybe we have the main message, but then it, it, it feels fake. It feels like it doesn't touch to the reality of life. But when you look at all the details in the historical text, it, it comes alive in a way that you can imagine it. So as I said, Saul hears of the, the brave words of this young man, David, and he calls David before him for a personal audience in verse 32. So look there again in your Bible with me, verse 32. And, and you'll notice that, that David breaks the normal protocol. Then instead of waiting for the king to speak first, he actually starts the conversation. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with his Philistine. And so David is volunteering to go and face this giant Goliath. And you'll notice then in verse 32 that Saul tries to dissuade him from going. And that he, he look there in your Bible actually, verse 33. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. That he's saying, David, you are, you're too small, you're too inexperienced, that there's no way that you're going to be able to face this great, tall warrior with state-of-the-art armor. And then you can see how David defends his record He's saying, no, I actually am equipped for this, that I can face this great menace to the people of Israel. Look at verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And so this isn't hubris. This isn't just a a young man who's kind of puffed up with his own ability. But that over time the Lord had equipped David to fight this battle. And yes, the battle is the Lord's, as we'll see, but still that his past had had put him in a place where he actually felt like he he could face Goliath by God's grace. And of course, this is important for us to remember that the Lord is equipping us to face the, the battles of life as well. That maybe you're in the the sheep field, or you're engaged in some kind of labor or work that doesn't feel glamorous, it doesn't feel like you're making a real difference for the world, that you wish you were doing something more significant, 
but that maybe God is actually equipping you for future battles while you're with the sheep and engaged in things that seem menial or unimportant in the world's eyes. But then you'll see how Saul responds after David lays out his resume. Saul relents in verse 37. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And I don't think that Saul is saying that out of faith, um, because we know that he has rejected the Lord, that the Spirit has departed from him. But this is a last-ditch effort, that he's gone down the list of all of the possibilities for defeating Goliath. And, and he got to the very bottom of the list, and David is the last thing on his list. He has no other options. And so he has to step out with this very risky plan of letting this young, inexperienced man face Goliath, that he knew that the survival of his army was riding on the outcome of this battle. But then you see that he tries to give David the, the best chance of survival. And so he takes him into the royal armory, and he puts the best helmet, the best mail. He, he clothes David in his own armor. And again, from a worldly perspective, this is a good idea. If you're going to face Goliath, you want the best, latest military equipment. But then it says that David is unable to go forward with this equipment. And it says that he had not tested them. I remember actually a a cartoon of this story that I I watched as a child— and they, they always showed when David put on the armor that it was too big for him and he literally couldn't move with the, the heavy armor. And I don't think that's what it's saying. I don't think it's saying that he couldn't move, but that he hadn't tested these in real conflict, real battle, that he had, he had never used that sword and that shield. And he knew that it wouldn't be wise to, to face an enemy with something that he was unfamiliar with, that he hadn't practiced with, that he hadn't tested and so then he, he does something that at first, from our perspective, seems maybe foolish, that he puts off the armor, he puts away the sword, he goes forward without armor, without a shield, without a sword. He takes his shepherd's staff, and then he goes down to the stream and picks out five stones. And you can actually, on YouTube, if you have the time, look up slingers, um, and there are people who still do slinging, I guess that's what you would call it. Um, And they show the kinds of stones that they use that they would look for really a football-shaped stone um, that could be about the size of a a golf ball. And he put these stones into his bag, and he goes out to face Goliath. Now, again, when the, the telling of the story, sometimes this is depicted as impossible odds. But there's a, a really helpful book called David and Goliath by an author named Malcolm Gladwell, who actually, he's not a Christian, but the theme of the book is how seeming disadvantages can turn into advantages. And he, he talks about a lot of the historical context of slingers in the ancient world. Right? If I was to take a sling out, I would probably hurt myself and maybe by chance I would hurt somebody else, but it wouldn't go very well. 
But for slingers who had practiced that it was an extremely deadly weapon, that they would actually have garrisons of slingers in ancient armies who could throw stones at, they said, about 100 to 150 miles per hour. Um, and, and so it would instantly kill something that it hit. And, and a skilled slinger could kill a bird or an animal from a, a far distance. And so if you were going to put money down, David versus Goliath, and you were looking at the, the odds of which one is going to succeed in this this conflict. Well, even knowing ancient warfare, if, if you knew that somebody was very, very good with a sling, you might actually put your money on the, the slinger over the warrior with a sword and, and armor. And so in a, in a sense, then, it's, it's, ta- it's changing the nature of the, of the battle. And it, it reminds me of that scene in Indiana Jones where the guy comes up with the, the sword and he's swinging his sword around in Indiana, pulls out his gun and shoots the guy, um, that you, you take a, a gun to a knife fight, and, and that David here is taking a sling to a sword fight, changing the nature of the engagement. But then you see that as David approaches Goliath, that the Goliath sees him coming and begins to, to mock him, saying, am I a dog that you come out to me with a stick? Are you going to try to to beat me like a dog? And this is something that Malcolm Gladwell in his book points out, that often people in recorded history with exceptional height also have bad eyesight. Um, And so there's a good chance that that he he can't see very well. And even so, it it mentions that as David runs, runs forward later is when he pulls out his sling. And so from Goliath's perspective, he really is coming with unarmed, it seems like, with nothing but a stick. And so he, he's not afraid at all. He might have felt differently if he knew that it was a skilled slinger that was coming to face him. And so he curses David by his gods. And then we'll come back to the, the words of David in verse uh, 46 to 47. But David then lays out the theological nature of this battle, that this is a, a battle between false gods and the true God, that this, this is a spiritual conflict, and, and he asserts that God will give him the victory. He runs forward. He sends his rock flying with his sling. It hits Goliath in the head, and there's some debate among scholars about did he die later? Did he die when the, the stone hit him? Um, and even the text is slightly ambiguous. He definitely could have died immediately when the stone hit him in the forehead. But he falls down, presumably dead or at least knocked out. And then David comes forward, pulls out the sword of Goliath, cuts off Goliath's head, holds it up. The, the army of evil has been defeated. It emboldens the army of Israel to go forth and defeat the Philistines, that they route the Philistines all the way back to their homeland, and it's this great victory. And it says that, that David then takes the head of Goliath and says, to Jerusalem. But remember that at this point, Israel was not in control of Jerusalem, that it was actually a Jebusite city 
that when David becomes king, the first thing he does is take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. But he holds up the, the head of Goliath to the Jebusites in Jerusalem, in the sense showing that Jerusalem was already on his mind, that he was already planning what he would do when he became king. And then you'll see how the text wraps up that David is, is called before Saul. And Saul began to ask, well, whose son is he? And some point out that he was told that, that David was the son of Jesse back in chapter 16. But he's a king, and so he, though he knows that David is his music therapist who had been playing the lyre for him, that now he wants to say, now tell me again, who is his father? Where does he come from? Because he would receive great honor. He would become the king's son-in-law. He's coming into the family after his great victory. So that's the, the story. That's the, the historical perspective. Again, it's, a, it's an exciting story. But, I, but now let's move to another perspective. So we've been looking at it from the historical perspective. But now let's turn the story and, and look at it from the, the theological perspective. What is this telling us about God as we consider the battles of our life? And I said that we would go back to David's words in verse 46. Look there in your Bible with me. This is the, the very center of this whole entire chapter. That if you want to say, what's the main theme of the David and Goliath story? Well, we see it in, in the words of, of David. And he says that he would win the victory that day, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So we can pull three theological phrases out of the words of of David there and, and unpack them. The first phrase is that there is a God in Israel. That's why he would fight this battle, that all may know that there is a God in Israel. And there is a God in your family. There is a God in Hope Presbyterian Church. There is a God in the Presbyterian Church in America. There is a God in his church throughout the world. There is a God in the universe, the living God who made heaven and earth, who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. And though the world can seem dark, that is what we need to remember every single day, that there is a God at work in your life, in my life, and in the world, that there is a God in Israel. That's the first proposition. The second is this, that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. 
that the Lord saves not with bombs or military strength. The Lord saves not with wealth or your investment portfolio. The Lord saves not with cultural influence or political action. That the Lord saves not with yoga or Eastern meditation. That the the Lord saves not with church budgets or church buildings. That the Lord saves through his spirit. And that's what we see in the final and third theological proposition. He says, for the battle is the Lord's. And I mentioned at the beginning, what battle are you facing this morning? And you can remember that whatever the battle you're facing is, that the battle is the Lord's. It's, it's ultimately his battle. And that's why in Zechariah 4, 6, we read, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Or Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I think that this is so important for us to remember as Hope Church, but especially for me as the the pastor of Hope Church, that I have so much that I I desire to see for his church throughout the world, but especially for Hope Church, to see the church grow and thrive and and be healthy and send out missionaries and disciple people and see people baptized. But then sometimes I can get in my mindset that somehow it's it's my battle, that it's up to me to fight the the battle of the kingdom. And that's where this text is is so helpful because it's saying, no, the battle is the Lord's, that this is God's church that we are his people, and that ultimately the, the battle of the church is not your battle or my battle, that it's the Lord's battle. Now, we can all say that we just work here, we just volunteer here, but the battle's the Lord's and that he will bring victory in his timing. And of course, it's the same for you then, that the battle that you are facing in your life that you may think of it as your battle, but that it's the, the eyes of faith that, that gives up the battle to the Lord, saying, no, the battle is the Lord's. It's his battle. And I'm going to step back and let God fight his own battles. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't use our gifts. I already mentioned that, that David was equipped for the battle that God used him to fight his own battle. But God didn't need David's skill with the sling. He didn't need his, his bravery. He didn't need his faith that it was the Lord's battle. And he had the privilege of being used by the Lord to fight his battle. And it's the same for you, that, that you have skills, you have gifts from the Lord, but the Lord doesn't need them, but he may use them in his grace to fight the battles. And so then fighting the battles of life actually becomes a a spiritual privilege that we have from the Lord rather than something to be feared. So again, we've been looking at the historical perspective, the story. We've looked at the, the theological perspective, what this says about God. But then finally, let's 
look at it from the, the Christological perspective. What does this story tell us about Christ? And if you're around Hope Church long, you know that, that every week we end with, with Jesus as the, the culmination of the story of the Bible, that all of Scripture testifies to Jesus. And sometimes it may feel almost like you pull Jesus out of the hat at the end of the, of the sermon, um, but it's really not because the entire Bible is about Jesus, that everything really does come back to Christ. And I think it's especially clear here, because remember that the word Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And that David was an anointed one, anointed by the prophet Samuel as the, the future and coming king of Israel. That In that sense, he is a Messiah, an anointed one, who is a signpost pointing forward to the, the future Messiah. And that ultimately, he is the one who, who fights the battles, that he is the one who steps into the void to, to face the powers of darkness, to fight the, the powers of evil on our behalf. And I kept thinking of this week about the, the story in Daniel where the, the king has this, this vision of a statue that, that represents all of the kingdoms of the world, all the worldly power. And it's same, similar to Goliath, this, this giant. And that this, this stone comes and smashes into the feet of that statue. And the entire world order crumbles to the ground. And that that stone that, that shatters the nations is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. And, and so Jesus then is both... David fighting the powers of evil on our behalf. He is the, the stone that, that shatters the nations, that, that brings powers of, of evil to the ground, that, that defeats sin, death, and the devil. And so then our call today is to, to look to, to Jesus. We said that the battle is the Lord's, that he will fight the battle and so if you are afraid of the battles of life, the question is, have you given the battle over to the Lord? Do you see Jesus as the one who will fight your battle? And that's the first step of becoming a Christian, is acknowledging that you can't fight the battles, that you can't win the victory by your own strength, that, that only Jesus can fight for you. And here in this, this meal, we have a picture of this victory that Jesus wins, that, that Jesus defeats the power of evil in a surprising way, just like it surprised Goliath that someone would come with, without a, a breastplate and without a helmet and without a sword. And it surprised Satan and the power of evil that, that the true final anointed one would come without sword and spear, that he didn't come as a, as a military commander to defeat the power of evil. But he came in humility and weakness and through his body being broken and his blood being shed, defeated evil for us. Now, if you're here and you've never 
repented and trusted in Christ, if you are still trying to fight your own battles, that we're, we're glad that you're here. Um, but we would encourage you to wait, to, to not take this meal. And, and the goal is not to exclude you, uh, but actually to protect you from hypocrisy of going through religious motions that would do no benefit to you and it would do harm. And so again, if you're, if you're here uh, and you're unsure, watch this unfold. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus. But for the rest, you don't have to be a, a member of Hope Church. You don't have to be a member of a Presbyterian church. Uh, to be one who is trusting in Christ, has made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel, uh, not bound by the action of another church from, from taking this meal, but one that can, can join in professing the faith that we hold together. So I'd encourage you to turn with me to page 9, and we'll confess our faith using the, the words of the Apostles' Creed, joining the believers throughout the ages of the the pillars of our Christian faith. So read with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So on the night that our Lord was betrayed... He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come forward in any order. Uh, Jonathan and I will be over here. I can break off a piece of bread and give it to you. Then you can take the cup and return to your chair. Uh, we also have uh, gluten-free here if you need it. It has the juice on top and the bread below. Uh, and then Ernie will go around. If mobility is an issue, feel free to raise your hand, um, and he can bring it to you. Well, let's pray. Father, we recognize that, that we do face battles, external battles, internal battles, spiritual battles, and we are so apt to, to rely on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power, our own ability to pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. But Lord, the battle is the Lord's, that there is a God in Israel and that you win the victory not through shield and through human strength, that you bring the victory through your Son, through the true Son of David, the Anointed One. So, Lord, I pray that, that all of us can, can fix our hearts on Jesus. And, Lord, we thank you that the power of evil has been shattered 
through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And Lord, we're excited for when he comes again in glory to, to finally rout evil, to, to put it to an end once and for all, but we know that it has been defeated. And so as we come to this meal, we pray we can come boldly, confidently, in faith, not faith in our, ourselves or our own ability, but faith in the completed work of Jesus on our behalf and his grace that is displayed here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. So now please stand if you're able. Our final song, Nothing But the Blood. It, I mean, it's picking up on the same thing that, that we've been talking about. That, that what can win the, the, the battles of life? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.
Well, thank you so much for worshiping with us. Um, on